Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. I ain't no electrician, but I do know that there is a right way and a wrong way to go about making electrical connections. Uh, Some of you guys know that firsthand from experience, right? You ever hooked up anything wrong and sent sparks flying? Felt it, probably, uh, jolt through your arm. But, uh, well, just like you can go right and wrong in making electrical connections, so there are some right and wrong ways to go about connecting with our Heavenly Father through prayer. And that's sort of what we want to talk about this morning as we come to the second message in this series, how we need to have a good and proper connection with God through prayer. Um, Last week we talked about uh, prayer and, and how Uh, Prayer is all about a relationship. We don't just pray to pray. Prayer is not an end in itself whatsoever. Prayer is about communing with God. It's about a relationship with Him, um, meeting with Him, depending on Him, seeing His, you know, having Him respond in our lives. It's all about developing a relationship with God. And um, there is a right way to pray, there's some wrong ways to pray, and uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, Fortunately, the disciples asked Jesus this question, this very question, Lord, uh, they they wanted to know how to pray, so they, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray, and Jesus taught them how in Matthew 6, 7 through 13. This is one of the... Uh, this is one of the more helpful passages on, on prayer because it gives us a model for it. He teaches us first how not to, and then he's how not to pray, and then how to pray. So let's first look at how not to pray. Uh, we'll look at the Lord's warning against meaningless, uh, repetitious prayer in verses 7 through 8. Verse 7 says, And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus warns against uh, meaningless, thoughtless, repetitious prayer here. And uh, it's important to note that He did not Uh, speak against repeated prayer. Uh, We repeatedly thank God for some things daily, kind of like our food. We call it saying grace before every meal. Um, He also did not teach against persistent prayer. Uh, We're going to learn about persistent prayer here in a week or two. Uh, We can and should pray persistently for Many things, like the salvation of our friends, the salvation of our family. I hope we're persistently going before God in prayer for their salvation. 
But in this context, the warning is really directed against Gentile or pagan forms of prayer where the gods were sort of cajoled or stirred up to answer someone's prayer because of their many words or their really long prayers. And there's really not a lot of thought put into it. It wasn't relational. It wasn't authentic. It's just a lot of, you know, going through the motions in prayer, trying to get this God to respond to me, trying to get him to listen to me. Well, uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, Buddhism. And I can just picture now the orange jumpsuits, you know, (laughs) and rocking back and forth with candles in their hands, muttering and stuttering, saying, reciting the same prayers over and over, trying to get the God to listen. Uh, One of the finer examples from Scripture of this type of prayer, I think, comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, where um, there's a spiritual showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophet Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, Elijah is the one who challenges them to a spiritual showdown and uh, there's this big altar up there uh, loaded with wood. And, and uh, basically, whoever's God, Elijah's going to pray to Yahweh. Baal's prophets are going to pray to Baal. And whoever is the real God is going to respond to their prayers and just burn up that offering on the altar. And um, from morning until noon, Baal's prophets are dancing and crying out to Baal, trying to get him to respond. And about at noon, Elijah starts to mock them. And he says, where's your God? How come he's not listening? Maybe he's sleeping or he's busy or he's relieving himself. Uh, it's, it's pretty humorous. But uh, then after noon, after Elijah mocks them, they start to get frantic, and they start to cut themselves, trying to get their God's attention. And it never comes. Baal never answers. And then Elijah steps in. He prays. After dousing the entire altar in water and digging a trench around it and filling it with water, and Elijah prays, and God burns up that offering. He licks up all the water in the trough and ends the drought on Israel just that fast. That's a great example of Gentile prayer, the way that the Baal's prophets prayed. Um, That sort of pagan prayer had rubbed off on a lot of the Jews in Jesus' day, and it made for some really strange religious practices and some really strange And long, flowery prayers. There's some prayers recorded in the Talmud, I think it is, a Jewish collection of writings, where this one rabbi, before he entreats God, calls him 16 different adjectives. Oh, holy, majestic, upright, righteous, you know, like they just go on and on. It's like they're not treating God like a person at that point. It's it's really strange. Long, flowery prayers they would make in the marketplaces for everyone to see. Everybody, look how holy I am, you know, because I'm praying. And then there, um, there's this, uh, the fact that this is rubbed off in some of the Christian circles today. It didn't just rub off on the Jews. This Gentile prayer practice has rubbed off in many churches 
that take the name of Christ. Um, when I grew up, I grew up, you guys know, Roman Catholic. And when I went into the confessional to confess my sins to the priest, I would come out and he would tell me to recite the rosary. Now, the rosary has 72 prayers on it that you recite. This is not heartfelt prayer. These are just prayers you're reciting. I guess you could maybe get, work your heart into it a little bit, but that's not the point. The point is there's 72 prayers that you're just praying to pray to forgive yourself, to get God to forgive your sin. 56 of these prayers are to Mary, Jesus' mother. Hail Mary, 56 times. And there's another prayer at the end. It's, it's to Mary as well. I don't know which, which one it is. But 72 prayers, 56 of which are not to God. They're to Mary, to a dead person. So what are you going to do with that? That is nothing but purely Gentile pagan prayer. Repetitious pagan prayer, not directed to God, and it's a mockery of the gospel and a relationship with God. Well, anyway, I digress. The point is, we are to pray thoughtfully, not using meaningless repetition and recitation. Pray with a relationship. Pray authentically. Talk to God. Um, Jesus didn't want his disciples to fall into that kind of prayer life that characterized pagans, where they believed that the length of their prayers, the repetition of their prayers, the sheer quantity of words and the prayers recited that made their prayers effective. It didn't matter. And, and uh, I think most of us understand that here. God doesn't answer our prayers because of our many words and our, you know, whatever it is, long, flowery prayers. But at the same time, we can still fall into this trap of thoughtless prayer. Because we pray for our meals, think about this. This happens a lot at mealtime, I think, because we're so used to praying at every meal, maybe three times a day or more, that we sort of fall into a, a habit where we're kind of praying, or my dad's praying, or my mom's praying, but I'm not really praying with them, or I'm not really putting a lot of thought into it. You know, we just kind of pray the same rote script over and over, and we say it, but we're not really putting our mind into it. Does that make sense? So even we are in danger of praying, you know, uh, just meaningless, thoughtless prayers at times. I kind of get a little routine-ish, a little too, uh, little too routine-ish in our prayers. But the reason uh, that he gives for why we don't have to go on trying to get God's attention through repetitious prayer is because of what he says in verse 8. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we even ask. So when we go to pray, we're not making our you know, requests known to God. He already knows. We're bringing them to Him in a relationship, seeking His will, seeking His uh, deliverance, seeking Him. Developing that relationship. Seeking His guidance, maybe, in the things that we're going through. So that's how not to pray. Now let's look at how to pray. Let's look at the Lord's model for prayer in verses 9 through 13. He says to pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, brand new verse to you, I'm sure, right? Brand new passage of scripture. Never heard it before. Now you've heard it so many times that it's pretty easy to make it meaningless repetition. Uh, This is what we typically call the Lord's Prayer because it's from the Lord. He gave it to us. Um, It was given to his disciples. So I would actually prefer to call it the disciples' prayer. Um, This is what disciples, this is how disciples of his are to pray. And notice how different this is from the pagan prayer concept. This prayer is short, isn't it? It's really short. It has structure and thoughtful sequence. There's, there's logic there. There's a flow of logic that goes through it, as we'll see. It's relational. It doesn't treat God like this force out there that they're trying to manipulate. It's a relationship with God. It has deep significance for our lives. It addresses real needs that are both physical and spiritual. Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me. That sort of thing. And it's God-centered. It's not man-centered. It revolves around God and His will. It includes adoration. It's not just me bringing my requests to God. It includes adoration, confession of sin. It centers on God and, and His will. And so this prayer is a bold contrast to what he called a Gentile prayer. And it serves as a model or an example for us to pray so when he says pray then in this way he isn't saying okay take this prayer and then just start to pray it repetitiously pray it i don't know seven times in your rosary he's not saying that he's saying pray in this manner use this as a model use this as an example use it as a guide for your own prayers And the first half of the prayer deals with God. Look at that, how it puts our perspective on him. If you look in verses 9 through 10, you see your three times. That's the key word in the first half. Your name, your kingdom, your will. It just puts your mind immediately where it should be on God, right? When we want to pray sometimes, the first thing we want to do is just, Lord, I need this, I need that, I want this, and... This prayer doesn't do that. It focuses on on God and uh, His will. Uh, Sometimes um, our prayers are, for lack of a better term, lame because they're all about us. They're just all about us and what we need, what we want. But this prayer, guys, is balanced. It starts out reminding us of, of the Lord and how basically everything that... Uh, that we need, we want, whatever our will is, is is subject to his will. And um, first, we see that we're to pray to God as Father, too. Uh, We're to pray to God as Father, our Father who art in heaven. Um, How different, you have to think, we take this for granted, we don't even think about it, but how different to pray to a God as a Father than to one of the pagan gods like they're doing over in India today. To the 
you know, the myriad of gods that they have that are dreadful, that are not consistent in their character, that are often more immoral than men, I get to pray to a heavenly Father who loves me, cares for me. That's way, what a world of difference between praying to the pagan gods and praying to our Father. Think of how many people in this world, religious or atheistic, who live in fear and anxiety throughout their lives because they don't believe in a loving Father God. Can you imagine not having a loving Heavenly Father to care for you? To think that everything's by chance or to think that I can't trust this God. I don't know what He wants from me. We pray to a Heavenly Father who loves us And Jesus said he cares for his children in Matthew 7. In the Jewish culture, the father was an important family leader. He was in the role of, and in a role of, that was a role of honor, of dignity, and of authority. But he was also loving and caring. I mean, it's ideal. We all want a father like this in our family. Someone who's an affectionate protector and provider who's worthy of respect and who is always near. He's always available. You can always just hop on his lap and tell him about your problems and things going on. That's who our God is. And then he gives us counsel in return. He guides us. What a wonderful picture. And then Notice that we're not just praying to a father, we're praying to a father in heaven, which means he has a perspective on our situations that we just don't have. He knows what's best for us. So he knows how to answer our prayers, and he has the power to answer our prayers because he's good, he's sovereign, he's up there, not down here. He's all-powerful. And then we turn to the next part, hallowed be your name, and hallowed just means to make holy. We hallow him, we make him holy, we set him apart. I mean, he is like nobody else. He's holy, he's set apart, he's not like us. And we want to uh, hallow him through prayer, we don't want to profane him. Profane would be the antonym of, you know, the word hallowed. We want to glorify God's holiness through our prayers. And this is so important to remember Because when we pray, we need to remember we're entering into the holy presence of God. That right there is so crucial. Because it can keep you from treating prayer too lightly. It can keep you from going into prayer uh, with your selfish motives. It might even stop your prayer altogether. Because you go to pray something then you remember, oh yeah, this guy's holy. This God is holy. I better not pray that. I better just not pray that. Lord, change my heart in this situation. Um, you, it keeps you from going into prayer hastily, going into prayer with wrong motives. And so we want to pray remembering his holiness. And that, that humbles us. And we want to pray with humility because there's a lot of uh, folks out there who teach believers this uh, you just think of the televangelists in general, but some of them. But they say, you better, you better name it and claim it. You just name what you want and you claim it by faith. You know, I want to develop a southern accent when I say that. But that's not what the Bible means by coming to God boldly. Coming boldly to the throne of grace. We come boldly knowing 
He's our heavenly father. He loves us. That door is always open to us in Christ. But we come humbly at the same time because we know the, the one whom we are coming before. He's a holy father. He's, you know, it's, it's not a, so it's not about us. It's not about our wants and our desires. It's not a, just about the here and now. I don't need to just name this and claim this. Um, sometimes God knows what's best for me, and it's not what I've claimed. So that's just something to consider. Um, this is about his kingdom. This is about his will being done. That's the next part. Uh, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to pray according to his will, your will be done. Um, so we're not just praying according to our wills. We're going to subject our wills to his. And, you know, the Apostle John says that if we're praying according to his will, so we might offer a bunch of prayers to God and things that we want, things that we need. And then at the end, we should finish it with, sometimes with, or with a heart of, the fact that we're praying according to his will. Because we know that his will is not always our will. And he knows just the right answer to our prayers. And the Apostle John says that if we pray according to his will, we know that he hears us. He hears us. In contrast to that verse, there's a verse in James, James 4.3, where James basically says, you guys aren't getting your prayers answered because you're not asking according to his will. You're asking according to your own will, which is selfish, worldly pleasure. So you ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So that's something to consider when we go to pray. Another good principle. Uh, Now, about this kingdom come part, there's a lot of folks out there, this is uh, probably more mainstream. Uh, It is more mainstream. There's a lot of folks who understand this prayer for the kingdom to come in the sense that it's right now in a spiritual sense. Obviously, I'm not going to throw that completely out the window as if, to say that it's, it can't be used for today. There is a universal aspect of the kingdom of God where we are working, I hope, in this world right now for his kingdom to come, his will to be done. Right? We want to influence this world uh, with the kingdom of God. We're the ambassadors of the kingdom. We want to see people restored to the kingdom. We want to see the church built up. And, and uh, we want his kingdom to work. We want... Uh, people to be restored to it. But I also think that the plain sense here makes perfect sense. And the plain sense is that the kingdom's not here and we're praying for it to come. Does that make sense? I, I, just, I just like the plain sense. I think it makes perfect sense. The kingdom hasn't come yet. Let's pray for it to come. We want Jesus to come and restore all things. Spiritual as well as Physical. We want him to come. A lot of confusion about the kingdom, I think, can be cleared up by an understanding that there's two different aspects to God's kingdom. There's the universal aspect of the kingdom where God always reigns. He reigns from eternity past to eternity future. He never does not reign. He's always reigning. He's always on the throne. He never comes off the throne. It doesn't matter what the rulers of this world do. God's always ruling through his heavenly universal kingdom. But 
there's another aspect of the kingdom that is theocratic and what we might call the mediatorial kingdom. It's a theocratic political kingdom. And I think you get a taste of it first in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27, where God gives Adam the right to rule, to mediate, be his mediator on this earth. There's a man entrusted with the task of ruling for God on this earth. Adam loses it when he sins. It's then again entrusted to Israel, Mount Sinai. They have a theocratic, mediatorial kingdom on earth. God is the king on earth through his Shekinah glory presence in the temple, literally. Well, they apostatize. And Shekinah glory leaves the temple. They're exiled. And that kingdom is shut down. The kingdom is offered again in the Gospels. The good news of the kingdom is preached to Israel, to the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep. They reject their Messiah. When's that kingdom going to come again? Well, Jesus is going to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then when he comes in his glory with all of his angels, then he's going to sit on his throne in his glorious 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Isn't that awesome? I believe it. Jesus is coming back. He's going to restore things. And we want to pray for that kingdom to come, to restore things, and to bring that blessing, that blessed hope to this world. That's what we all long for. So, that's when his will is going to be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven, like you might read about in Zechariah 14 and a lot of the Old Testament prophets. But when praying this, you have to think that even now, we are concerned about God's will. We're concerned about His will now. We're concerned about His will and His program advancing, bringing restoration. Now, we're also to pray about our physical needs here. Uh, pray about our physical needs. That's the second half of the prayer in verses uh, 11, 12, and 13, you notice the key word goes from your to us. Give us, forgive us, lead us. And the first one is give us our daily bread. Just give us our daily sustenance that we need. This is not talking about our wants. This is not talking about our luxuries. This is a cry of dependence upon God for his promise to provide everything that we need. Bread in the Bible often has a greater significance than we give it. Bread refers to your livelihood, your daily sustenance. Sometimes it refers to your income. And so the prayer is, is just depending upon God for daily needs. It kind of reminds you of the manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven, you know, that, that came down daily. They had to rely on God to provide for their needs in the wilderness. They had to, had to trust God to bring their manna daily. Um, it's interesting. We, were, we are in Ecclesiastes and men's group on our Friday mornings. You guys are welcome to join us for that. Uh, 6.30 a.m. men's fellowship group. A uh, great group of guys. Really growing together, praying together, going through the word together. It's a great time. 
But uh, we were talking, we were in Ecclesiastes where it says to cast your bread upon the waters. And it's not talking about literal bread, it's talking about your diversity of investment. You know, after a while it'll return to you. If you make wise investments, well, that's the country we live in. We have so much bread, we can share it, we can invest it. But in this prayer, for many people in the first century, for many people throughout the world, this is a prayer that, uh, for bread daily. Like, I don't have a freezer. I eat daily what I need, and I have to rely on God. I, I read a story this week where there was a, a pastor from one of the poor parts of Africa who had come to the United States to serve for a while, for one year, and someone asked him at the end of one year, what is your big takeaway? What are you going to remember most from your year in the United States? And this is what he said. He said, not having to worry about food each day. He said, in America we have food but no appetite. In his country back home, people have an appetite, but they have no food. And so give us this daily bread as a heartfelt prayer against worry for them. What are you worried about right now? What are you looking to God for? What need do you have that you need met? Why are you worried about it? Don't you know you have a heavenly father who's going to care for all your needs? And if you don't have what you want, boy, your God's doing a good sanctifying process in your life, isn't he? He's making you more like Jesus. Maybe he will give you what you want. I don't know. But just know you have a heavenly father who knows what you need, cares for you. So we pray about our physical needs, but also our spiritual needs. Uh, the specific spiritual needs mentioned here include forgiveness and temptation. First, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the word for debts could just be translated sin. Um, a sin is like a debt, a moral or spiritual debt to God that must be repaid, right? Sins are debts to God. We owe a penalty to him for them. And the only way we're going to be released from our sin penalty to God is if he forgives us. And so we have to depend upon him in Christ to forgive us our sins. Uh, we have our sins forgiven in Christ when we trust in him as our Savior. Um, all believers, as before a judge, imagine yourself sitting before the heavenly judge. And we all will someday. As believers, we have been forensically judicially forgiven of all of our sins in Christ, past, present, and future. The moment you trust in Christ as your Savior, you're born again by the Holy Spirit, you have been forgiven, declared righteous, justified, however you want to call it, once and for all. You have a perfect standing before God, but the, that's the um, judicial forgiveness, the forensic forgiveness that we have, However, sometimes we need to think about, often we need to think about, our need for parental forgiveness is what we might call it. And God is the parent. So once you're born again, you become a believer. You are now a child in the family of God. And God is your father. You're his child. No matter what you do, God is not going to 
kick you out of his family because of your sins. But because you sin, sometimes it's just like in your relationships. When you sin against someone else, there's friction. The static enters into that relationship. It gets fuzzy. You lose connection. That happens in our relationship with God when we sin. And so when we come to pray, we need to think sometimes, at least, what do I need to confess to God? Because that sin, again, it causes friction. And we want to connect with Him. So we need to get it out because sin hardens us. It hardens that um, connection. It kind of messes with it. So... Um, Let's confess our sins to God if we want Him to hear us pray, if we want to hear from Him. Um, we shouldn't expect God to hear our prayers if, notice the rest of the verse, if we aren't forgiving our debtors or the people who sin against us. That's... What he says right there for in, in, in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their transgression, your heavenly Father will forgive you. That's not talking about your salvation forgiveness. This is talking about parental forgiveness. If you don't forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So that means you have to prepare your heart to pray. Don't expect God to hear your prayers if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart against some other people. That's what he's teaching there. That's the footnote for the prayer is in verses 14 and 15. And then notice how, how smoothly it goes from verse 13 and 14 to 15. Or sorry, from verses uh, 13, 14, and 15 when it's talking about forgiveness. And some of your Bibles you have a, a little bracket, a doxology in brackets there where it says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this is what we're talking about in our Bibliology Sunday School class. You get the chance right now to do a little textual criticism. Uh, the brackets signify that that doxology was not in the earliest manuscripts that we have, which means it probably wasn't a part of the original prayer. And so I think it sticks out like a rubber nose, you know, like a wax nose or something. I just think it's so... It stands out to me. But... Um, and if you think about it, Jesus is talking about forgiveness, forgiving your debtors, and then he explains in verses 14, for 15, 14 through 15, if you forgive others, that doxology there is just kind of an interruption in the narrative. So that's my take on it. But if you look at it this way, like we've been talking about in bibliology, um, we have 105% of the text. <laughs> Put it that way. All of God's word is there. But sometimes some of the scribes might have added some stuff for public worship or whatever. But the last part of the prayer is, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's basically, I just want to sum that up by saying, Lord, protect me from temptation inside and from temptation from the enemy outside. Even protect me from harm from the enemy. Have you ever prayed for that protection? Yeah, I do. I do it all the time. I knew very well, full well, that there was a real enemy in my first year in the pastorate here. Uh, the first few months I was here. I started praying for protection from the enemy after that. But uh, 
This prayer is like saying, just lead me in such a way that I don't sin. I don't even want to be tempted to sin. Lord, I love you so much, and I I hate the sin in me. I hate the sin in the world, and I just don't even want to be tempted with it. Do you see that? Don't even let me be tempted by it. That's an earnest disciple's prayer right there. That's a good prayer to pray. This This whole prayer is just a wonderful prayer model, isn't it? It can, I think, provide a great pattern for our prayer lives. It teaches us there's some proper and improper ways to pray. But while I do want us to see this as a model or an example for our prayer lives, I don't want us to get too carried away with the form and the structure of our prayers, if you know what I mean. Uh, Some of you have probably heard of the, the ACTS acronym for prayer, where you start out with adoration, then confession, then thanksgiving, then supplication. It's great. It's very similar to the Lord's pattern. Um, It'll help you pray balanced prayers. But you have to be careful about getting too mechanical. Because like I said last week, you can find yourself focusing more on the prayer itself than actually praying. And it's funny how when you start to think about, okay, what am I saying? It's funny how the prayer just starts to die on your lips. You ever notice that? I'm so concentrated on how and what I'm praying that I just end up not praying. So don't get too mechanical. But at the same time, this passage shows us we shouldn't be necessarily under mechanical either. There should be some thought put into it, right? And sometimes, hey, I'm praying. I have, I have prayer cards. I don't, I don't use them as some sort of rigid structure, but I use them to remind me of some things that I need to pray about. And there's some things I pray about persistently that are on these prayer cards that I would forget if they weren't. And so I have no problem using stuff like that or the ACTS acronym. But I can only speak personally, you know, this morning. Um, I'm in the habit of, of using um, the Lord's model or the ACTS acronym when I go to spend those extended times alone in prayer, but there's also throughout the day where I'm just sending up random prayers throughout the day, right? I call them bullet prayers, just shooting out prayers to heaven as they come up, they come on my heart. I, I, uh, I Driving down the road, maybe I see somebody, I think about how can I pray for that person. I'm not going into this big spiel, you know, I'm just praying in that moment real quickly. So praying like a child, praying what's on my heart. The point is, use the prayer model that the Lord gives us, but don't let it become this hindrance. The goal is not polished, flowery prayers, but real and authentic prayer. Prayer is about relationship and communion with God, and that's what makes for the best prayer. And that's our last point, It's just to pray authentically. Pray authentically. Pray then this way. And I have a story about authentic prayer. There's a story about three preachers who were arguing about the best way to pray, and while they're arguing, there's a power lineman that's kind of working nearby. And one preacher said, I find that kneeling at the bedside is definitely the best way to pray. And the second preacher said, no, I think it's standing with your arms outstretched to heaven and looking up. I think that's the best way to pray. That's how Jesus prayed when he was handing out the fish in the loaves, with his eyes open, looking up. Well, the third one said, you're both wrong. 
because I get the best results in my prayer life when I lay prostrate on my face, with my face on the floor. And uh, the power lineman is over here. He's kind of listening in on it all, and he just can't stand it anymore. And he says, hey, fellas, if you don't mind my humble opinion, the best prayer I ever prayed while I was, was when I was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. Right? That's pretty funny stuff. You can bet your boots that was an authentic prayer. Well, let's be authentic when we pray too. Let's pray right now. Lord, we're so thankful uh, just for your word this morning and uh, how it teaches us how to pray. We love it. We're thankful for the instruction that you have preserved for us in your word, and I pray that we would always remember that time in prayer is never, ever wasted. We will never in heaven look back on our lives on earth and think, boy, I wish I hadn't have prayed so much. No, we're going to look back and say, I wish I would have prayed more. I wish I would have remembered that prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And it's an expression of our dependence upon you. And so, Lord, we just commit our prayer lives to you and ask that you would just make us more fruitful in prayer. Because if we're honest, this is one area of our lives that always needs just a little bit of touching up. And we look to your spirit to guide us and convict us of that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.